1: Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, Lord. It's transforming to us. It's uh, nourishing to our souls. And, uh, Lord, we pray that it would just do that this morning. Feed us and change us, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, Matthew chapter 24, we're gonna continue in uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. The emphasis here the Lord has for us this morning, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, son of man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. Now, this chapter that we're in here, chapter 24, it started off with the disciples asking the Lord Jesus for what sign there was going to be that was going to indicate that the world was going to come to an end, It was near. And the Lord Jesus, in this chapter so far, has given several signs, widespread deceptions, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places, pestilences or pandemics, and so forth. But now he comes to verse 37, to the sign which he calls the days of Noah. He says this in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And what Jesus is doing here is he characterizing the days of Noah as days when you could call no one paid any attention. No one paid any attention to God's warning, which he gave in Genesis 6, 6, 3. Genesis 6, 3, God gave a warning when he said, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, for his day shall be 120 years. So this was God saying in this verse that his spirit was striving with man. And you say, how was God's spirit striving with man? God's striving with man because God's spirit was speaking loud and clear through the conscience of man and telling him, your sins are terrible. You need to stop and turn around, repent. But man, during this time of Noah, was not interested in what God had to say about his life. Man was just too busy enjoying his life to be bothered about God. Now this situation where God is striving with man is what happened in the life of Jacob. We saw God striving with Jacob when Jacob had lived over 70 years of his life without any regard for God, and then one night God said, that's enough, that's enough, and that was a great night of God striving with Jacob. This is what happened in Genesis 32. This is God striving with Jacob, Genesis 32, 24, Genesis 32, 24, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw the man, that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Jacob said, and he said, let me go, sorry, the man said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto them, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. This was a striving. This was God striving with Jacob. And Jacob in this striving said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then God blessed him with a change of his name from Jacob to Israel. But Jacob responded to God's striving. First of all, Jacob got himself alone that night. And Jacob tried as best he could to pray. And only after he did that, got alone and he prayed, did God meet Jacob and then God unleashed onto Jacob all the striving that had been going on where for these 70 plus years where Jacob, where God was striving with Jacob, trying to speak to Jacob but to no avail. But in that night, that all night of striving, Jacob was broken, he became a broken man. His hip was practically broken, it was put out of joint, And that's the point in which God got through to his man. And Jacob came out of that night a completely changed man. After that night of striving with God, Jacob came off that night with a new name, Israel, with a new direction in life to exercise power that he had with man and with God. It all came about after these years of striving when Jacob was alone that night and prayed his heart out in Genesis 32, 9, Genesis 32, 9, where it says, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the God, the Lord, which set us unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies, and all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan and now I'm become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Jacob, for I fear him, lest he come and smite me, and so forth. That was a good thing, that was a good thing, and those were the days of Jacob. Those were the days of Jacob. God's striving, Jacob responded, God's striving stopped and Jacob was blessed with the new name Israel there was a time when god was striving with paul his name at that time was saul and paul responded to god's striving in acts 9:3 acts 9:3 as he journeyed he came near to damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth heard a voice saying unto him saul saul "'Why persecutest thou me?' And he said, "'Who art thou, Lord?' And the Lord said, "'I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. "'It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks.' And he, trembling and astonished, said, "'Lord, what wilt thou have me to do?' The Lord said unto him, "'Arise, go into the city, it shall be told thee what thou must do.'" So God said to Saul, to Paul, that it was hard for him to kick against thorns, it's hard for anybody to kick against thorns. Those thorns that God was referring to was God striving with Paul in his life, speaking to Paul, telling him it was he was wrong in his life, that those Christians that he was imprisoning were not people that he should be fighting against, but people that he should join with. And that was unthinkable for Paul. So Paul just kept striving and it continued until this day, just like with Jacob when God knocked Paul down to the earth, to the ground. And then Paul responded with two questions. First question, who art thou, Lord? Second question, what will you have me to do? Because Paul responded that way, God's striving with Paul stopped. That was a good thing. And we could call those the days of Paul And then Paul goes on to write, as we know, most of the New Testament. Those were the days of Jacob. Those were the days of Paul. But here, Christ is not referring to the days of Jacob. He's not referring to the days of of Paul, but to the days of Noah. And the days of Jacob and the days of Paul were the same, in a sense, as the days of Noah because there was this chapter of God striving with Jacob, striving with Paul, just as God was striving with people in Noah's day. But the difference was that in the days of Noah, there was no response. No response from man to God's striving. In those days of Noah, man said, I don't care about God, I don't care what God has to say about my life, and there was no praying their hearts out, like with Jacob or with Paul in Noah's day. There was no question of, who art thou, Lord? There was no question of what will you have me to do in Noah's day, but there was with one man, Noah, and no one else, not Amas, nobody else. And so in Noah's day, God said that there was going to be a limit set on his striving with man. In Genesis 6:3, my spirit shall not always strive with man. God was saying not always. And then God gave a warning to man, and the warning was 120 years. Genesis 6, 3, his day shall be 120 years. 120 years, that's what God gave to man. And during those 120 years, just think about it, it's more than a century. During that more than a century, God waited, and he counted down the time. And during that time, he was counting down the time he was saying, I want man to stop and repent because God's saying, I wanna stop and repent and not do this judgment. And during those 120 years, we can imagine how man just got more and more emboldened in his ways with the attitude of, look, I do what I wanna do and I get away with it. There's no lightning bolts from the sky stopping anyone down here, so all is fine, all is good. And man felt very comfortable and very secure because man could not see the sands in God's 120 year hourglass dropping through the neck. He couldn't see that. So there was no anxiety on man's part. He just kept living his life in rebellion against God. And he kind of felt a sort of refreshing liberation in his sin. And God kept waiting over a century as described in 1 Peter 3.20. 1 Peter 3.20 says, once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Those were the days of Noah. Those were the days of Noah. Days when no one paid attention to God's warning of coming judgment. And this is what Christ said would be The sign before he returned, no one paying attention. Preachers can preach their heart out about hellfire and brimstone, and it just becomes entertainment. No one does what little seven-year-old Cassidy did last week and comes up and saying, I don't want to go to hell. And so she puts her faith in Christ to save her from her sins. Jonathan Edwards, very interesting life, In 1741, in 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mostly, he had that whole sermon read out, and mostly he just read it with really out any passion in his sermon. But that sermon was so powerful, the words were so powerful, that people literally grabbed the pillars in the church thinking that the ground was gonna open up and swallow them down into hell. That sermon, impassionately read by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hand of Angry God, started what's called the Great Awakening in America. And it swept across our land and many put their trust in Christ. But today, not anymore. There's no fear sweeping across our land of sinners falling into the hands of an angry God. No one's grabbing any church pillars today, fearing the ground's gonna open up and swallow them into hell. And this is what Christ is referring to when he says this sign in this Matthew, verse 37, verse 37, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son as man be. In those days before the flood, he says they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. He says the days of Noah came down to one day when the limit was over. But the word that Christ used for eating here when he said they were eating and drinking, there's the, it's a Greek word that means they were gnawing on food like an animal, like a, like a lion. It's very much a picture like in Belshazzar's feast In uh, Daniel 5. In Daniel 5 it says, Belshazzar made a great feast for to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And Belshazzar, while he was tasting the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and the princes, his wives, his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass and of iron and wood and stone. The same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote and the king's countenance was changed. His thoughts were troubled and his knee, joints of his joints were loose and his knees smote one against the other. He was eating. He was drinking himself drunk with wine in an act of defiance. In the middle of it, he says, bring those vessels out of the temple that came out of the temple in Jerusalem so we can get drunk by drinking out of God's temple vessels, and that's when the hand came and wrote. And what the hand wrote was that you were weighed in the balances and you were found lacking, and that was the same night that he was murdered because the Medes and the Persians had breached the wall that very night. Now, Christ describes a scene in verse 40 when he says, then two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. So he's describing here a very agricultural scene, a field, and he's describing it with such a vividness here, here in this verse and the next verse, such a vividness, it's like he can see. He can see this, and he's telling them the, what they cannot see. He can see it, they cannot see it. It reminds me of a conversation I had with this last week with the rabbi in which he calls me and, um, <laughs> on the phone. First thing he says, Tom, Tell me you're finished with this Jesus stuff, he says. And if you really have something with your Jesus stuff, as he calls it, then, then I want to know. But so far, you haven't told me one thing that convinces me. There's nothing, he tells me, you know. So I told him, I said, I'm describing to you something you cannot see. I said, I can see clearly that Jesus Christ is God, that he's a loving, merciful, and saving God. He wants to save from sin. I can see that, but you can't see that, and I'm trying to describe to you what you can't see. Now, this is the sense in what Christ is doing in these two verses of verse 40 and 41. He's describing something that the disciples can't see, but he sees it vividly, It's like it's happening right in front of him. He sees these two people in the field. He sees these two women at the mill. And so this first scene is of two people that he's seeing working in a field. They're working together. The word here is together, together. They're working together. They're talking together. They're eating together. They spend so much time together because usually their work goes from sunup to sundown. And when you look at these two that are working in the field, there's nothing outwardly that you could look at and say, oh, this one's different from the other. They look the same. Nothing outward. These two persons look the same outwardly, but they're as different as day and night, inwardly. But you can't tell outwardly. Inwardly, one has trusted Christ as a Savior, and the other one has not trusted in Christ as a Savior. And now... Christ describes a great suddenness and he does this with the word taken in verse 40. Verse 40, one shall be taken, taken. In the sense of just taken, you know, we have this problem right now in Takati where the narcos are coming in there looking for all the young girls and the girls are walking in on the street. This happened 16 attempts in the first two weeks of June. This police chief at Tacati said 16 times narcos will come in a van and they'll just take The girl off the street, no one will ever see her again. She goes off for trafficking, who knows where. It's the taken all of a sudden. And so this is not in the evil sense, of course, in verse 40, but this is the same kind of idea with this word taken. Suddenly, one is taken. And then the other word that Christ used is the word left. The other one is left, as in left behind. That was a very powerful title that uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins Uh, chose for their series, Left Behind. No one likes to think of themselves as left behind, missing the bus, too late. But that's a picture here that Christ has painted in these two verses where one is taken and the other is left behind. Now, Christ has already in this chapter said how, how this is gonna happen, how one's gonna be taken when he said in verse 31, in verse 31, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So in these two verses about the field and the mill, when it says one shall be taken, this is the work of angels. Angels do this. They are the ones who take the one and leave the other behind. And so the scene, the scene here in these two verses, 40 and 41, is such that the two that are working in the field, the two women that are grinding at the wheel, the mill there, they look absolutely the same outwardly. They're friends. They're as close as you can think of. Uh, uh, they're working together, eating together, sun up to sundown, very closely linked to each other, They're so closely linked to each other that when Christ describes this separation between them, the process process there separating them, he uses the word in Matthew 13, 49, Matthew 13, 49. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. Sever, he says, sever. When we think of sever, we think of a blade, severing, you cut up a chicken and you use the blade to sever the, the legs off between the joints and so forth, like carving, this is the word that describes this separation process. It might be between a man and a wife that it, where the severing takes place, where one is taken and the other is left. So when Christ returns, the angels will be sent out to do this severing process and gather those who inwardly are really followers of Christ. They've repented, they're saved from those who just have an outward show but no inward reality of salvation. And it will be the time when Christ makes good on his promise, which he said in John 14:2. John 14:2, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So it's going to be the angels that bring Christ's own to him so that he can receive them to himself, like a groom receives his bride when she's brought to him. It'll be the angels who do this. As it says in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen. First Thessalonians 4 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Tom Cantor's messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. For other free resources, email us at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051. Join our live services on YouTube by searching Friendship with God with Tom Cantor every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.